one of the best modern war movies was made, a movie by the name of Saving Private Ryan. Anybody see Saving Private Ryan? It was an excellent modern war movie, not only because it was well done, but because it revolved around a very unique plot. You see, the plot of Saving Private Ryan went this way. There were, on the Normandy invasion, June 1944, on D-Day, there were four brothers who all took part in the D-Day invasion, and within a day or two of the invasion, three of the four had been killed in action. And the fourth was now missing in action. So four brothers, three of them are killed, one is missing in action. And then in this moment of compassion, someone in the War Department puts two and two together and realizes that there is going to be a mother who receives four telegrams from the War Department on the same day. Three telegrams telling her that she's lost a son and one telegram telling her that she has a son that's missing in action. And so in a moment of true compassion, somebody at the War Department says, we need to do something about this. And so a plan is concocted to put together a squad of soldiers that will go and find and locate this missing fourth brother named Private James Francis Ryan and locate him and bring him back to the rear and send him home as soon as possible so that this one mother will not receive a fourth telegram telling her that she has lost all four of her sons. And so that's what the whole movie is all about. It's about this squad of eight men who go behind enemy lines. They're searching for in all the chaos that existed in Western Europe over those days, it was tremendous chaos. And so they're searching through all of this chaos to find this one private Ryan so that they can return him. So that, there's the idea of saving, <clears throat> saving private Ryan. Now, through the course of the movie, excuse me, <clears throat> through the course of the movie, of the eight soldiers that were sent to find him, five of them are killed in action trying to find and save this private Ryan. So there's the irony of the whole thing, that in order for the one mother to not receive a fourth telegram, five other mothers will receive one telegram. And the whole irony is what a tremendous cost was paid for this one life. Five lives were sacrificed for the one. Now the five other soldiers, they may have been killed in action anyway. But the point is what a tremendous cost to pay for the one life. What an incredible length to go to to save the one life. I want to use that this morning as sort of a jumping off point to turn back to Acts chapter 13. We pick up again in our story through the Acts. We're in Acts chapter 13. And in Acts chapter 13, we will see the story of God saving Private Ryan. Only it's not Private Ryan, it's Private Sergius Paulus. God will go to incredible lengths to save one individual. We'll see the story of that in Acts chapter 13 this morning. So go ahead and join me there in your Bibles. If you've kind of forgotten where we're at in the Acts story, let me just kind of refresh our memories for just a moment. Um, Peter has all but passed off the scene now. And everything from this point on is going to be centered around Paul. And it's going to be centered around the Gentiles. This great commission that God has given to His church in Matthew chapter 28 this is, what all, this is all about, beginning from Acts chapter 13 through the end, it's all about the Gentiles, it's all about reaching the lost world, it's all about people who have not heard about Christ and getting the message to them. You remember that revival began in Antioch, and Barnabas has gone to Antioch, and he gets there and he realizes right away that the job of discipling these Antioch Christians is something that he needs Paul for. 
So he goes to Tarsus and he gets Paul and he brings Paul back to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas have both spent a year in Antioch discipling these new Christians. Now these new Christians in Antioch, they, they have had the Great Commission take root in their hearts. And they become burdened by the lost people all around them. And they become burdened by all the people that have never heard this gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they take it upon themselves to do something about that. Not the home church back in Jerusalem, not the mission board back in Israel, but them. They take it upon themselves to appoint missionaries and send these missionaries out, funding them, praying for them, sending them to a lost world to speak to that lost world about Christ. And the ones that they appoint are Paul and Barnabas. They've worshipped over this, they've fasted over this, they've prayed over this, and God has raised up Paul and Barnabas to send them out. And so that's kind of where we are here in Acts chapter 13. Let's go ahead and read our passage. I'll read from verse 4 down through verse 12. Beginning here in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But, God, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for it, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. You know, passages like this really get me excited. I, I hope you feel the same way. But I really get excited when I hear about the kingdom of God expanding and people hearing for the first time about the gospel, and people beginning to take the Great Commission seriously. So I hope this enthuses you like it enthuses me. But let's just take this passage this morning. Let's just walk through it just one step at a time. The first step that we want to see in the passage is that we are reminded once again of exactly who's in control, who's in charge, who's behind this, and who all this is for. Look in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. It was not the Antioch Christians that sent out Paul and Barnabas so much as it was the Holy Spirit. This is reminding us of what we were told back in verse 2. The Holy Spirit says, Set aside for me, set apart unto me, Paul and Barnabas, to do this work of taking the gospel to the lost people. So it is God, it is the Holy Spirit, who sends out Paul and Barnabas. Their mission work is to God for God, through God, by God. God is their supervisor. He is their boss, just like me. My immediate supervisor and my boss is God. And the same is true with you. To whatever extent you are engaged in, in kingdom work, your immediate supervisor and boss is God. The same with Paul and Barnabas here. It is the Holy Spirit who sent them out, and they go to Seleucia, and from there they sail to Cyprus. Now, who's from Cyprus? Barnabas. Is from Cyprus. Remember, Barnabas was from Cyprus. That's his home island. And he goes, they begin this mission trip, what will become known as Paul's first missionary journey. They begin it in Cyprus, which on one level makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Barnabas 
knows Cyprus. He's from there. He probably has contacts. He can show them around. He knows how to find his way around Cyprus. He probably knows some people that can maybe open some doors for them. They, they go and preach in the synagogues. Maybe Barnabas had a role in that. So on one level, it makes a lot of sense to begin at Cyprus. But on another level, that's the hardest place they could have gone, is it not? Because Barnabas will be returning to Cyprus as a Christian missionary which is the most difficult place that he could have gone. You know what I, what I mean when I say the most difficult place to speak about Christ is among your lost family members and close friends. That is the most difficult place for you to be a light of Christ is to those who know you best. What did Jesus say when He goes to Nazareth? And Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1 that He was unable to do many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. Because people didn't believe in Jesus in Nazareth. They found it hard to believe in Him because they knew Him so well. Isn't He the carpenter's son, they would say? Isn't He that same Jesus whose mother gave birth to Him before she was married? And so, Jesus would go on to say that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. The most difficult place for you to be a witness to Christ is among your lost family members and close friends. Anybody ever been on a mission trip? Either some other part of the country or maybe another country. What people find when they go on mission trips is always this. They always find that they are, they are able to speak the gospel in ways they never thought they could. Because they find that it is easier to speak about Jesus in another continent or in another country than it is to speak about Jesus right here at home. Because among those who know you best, that is the hardest place to speak of Jesus. But Barnabas and Paul get this. They get the fact that if the gospel is going to spread, it's going to have to start at home. And so Saul has already spent ten years back in Tarsus preaching the gospel there. That's where he's from. Now they're going to start in Barnabas' home understanding that if the gospel is going to spread to the ends of the earth, we can't skip over home. So they begin in Cyprus. They uh, sail uh, from a place called um, Seleucia down to uh, the port of Salamis, which, by the way, Salamis is where Salami comes from. Just kidding. But they land at Salamis, and they proclaim the Word of God. Somebody got there. And they proclaim the Word of God there, and then they travel over to the other side. John is there assisting them, and they go through the whole island as far as Paphos. So if we had a map of Cyprus... We would look, and over here on the northeast corner of Cyprus is Salamis. And on the southwest corner is Paphos. And they make their way across the whole island, preaching Christ. John is there assisting them. And then verse 6, they come upon this man called Bar-Jesus. Luke tells us that he is a magician and that he is a Jewish false prophet. And um, his name is Bar-Jesus. Now this guy Bar-Jesus is also here, verse 7, with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Now the proconsul, the proconsul was a Roman official. You see, Cyprus was what was known as a, a Roman senatorial province. And in a senatorial province, the highest ranking Roman official in that province was called the proconsul. Nobody outranked him in, on the whole island. So this would have been like maybe the governor, the governor of, of, of uh, Cyprus um, is, who they, is who this man Sergius Paulus is. But also beyond that, he also tells us 
Luke tells us that this man Sergius Paulus is no slouch when it comes to what goes on upstairs because Luke describes him as a man of intelligence. But with this guy, Sergius Paulus, is also this other guy, Bar-Jesus, this Jewish magician, false prophet, fraud. This guy, Bar-Jesus, has attached himself to Seleucius Paulus in some way, maybe in an official capacity, maybe he's like a spiritual advisor, or maybe just an unofficial capacity, maybe he's just there and he has won the confidence of Sergius Paulus and um, maybe he, Sergius Paulus asks him for advice or whatever. In, in whatever way, this guy Bar-Jesus has attached himself to Sergius Paulus. Now, we tend to think here, as we read up through verse 6, that Paul and Barnabas sort of happened across this guy Bar-Jesus by chance. But verse 7 clears it up for us and lets us know that it wasn't by coincidence that this happened because verse 7 tells us that this guy Seleucius Paulus had summoned Barnabas and Saul. So now we see why it is that Paul and Barnabas are here and we see why it is that Bar-Jesus is in the story and we see why Sergius Paulus is here because Sergius Paulus has summoned Paul and Barnabas and it says that he summoned them because he sought to hear the Word of God. So Sergius Paulus is seeking for God. But who seeks for God? Nobody, right? Paul tells us this in Romans 10, verses, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. Nobody seeks for God, not one. And so anyone who seeks for God is doing so because God has first sought them. Remember, that's what we talked about on Christmas Eve, and that's what we talked about last Sunday, was that all of these people coming to Jesus, the shepherds who come to the baby Jesus, they come to him because God first sought them. They seek the baby because God first sought them out. The wise men seek the baby because God first sought them out and drew them out of darkness to the light. And so anyone who seeks for God is doing so because God has first sought them. And so Sergius Paulus is seeking for God. He, sought, he seeks to hear the word of God. So that tells us that he is doing so because God is active in Sergius Paulus's heart. God has been active in his heart. And because of that, because of the activity of God in Sergius Paulus, he has now reached out to, reach to, uh, to summon to Paul and Barnabas to come here. He's probably heard about what maybe is going on in Antioch. Maybe he's heard about what is going on in Jerusalem. He's heard about this new faith called Christianity, or, or maybe, maybe he doesn't even know that's what it's called yet, because remember, it's in Antioch that it first gets the name. So he's heard about this movement of faith that's going on in Antioch and in Jerusalem, and he's summoned for Paul and Barnabas. Maybe he's heard that they're on the island. Maybe he's summoned for somebody from Antioch to come. But in whatever case, he has reached out for somebody to come and bring the Word of God to him because God is working in his heart. So notice how God has orchestrated all of this. And I think this is the point of this section of Scripture. The point is, look at the lengths that God has gone to to pursue this one man, Sergius Paulus. God has orchestrated all of this. Over here, in Cyprus, in Paphos on Cyprus, God looks down and He sees a man named Sergius Paulus and God puts His sights on Sergius Paulus. And God says, I want him as my child. But how can he be my child? There's only one way 
that he can be my child, and that is by faith. And the only way that he can have faith in me is if he hears my word. That's what Romans 10, 17 says. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. And so God is not going to send an angel to Sergius. He's not going to send a dream to Sergius. He has to send a Christian to Sergius. And so God looks down. He sees way over here, Sergius Paulus. And there's no Christians around. Nobody here has heard. Nobody here knows even about Jesus to even believe in Him yet. And He looks way over here, 250 miles away, in Antioch. And He sees Paul and Barnabas. And He says, I want them to take the message about Me to Him. And He is the one who's raised up a church in, in Antioch to begin with. He was the one who put it in Barnabas' heart to go to Antioch. He was the one who put it in Barnabas' heart to go and get Paul. He was the one who put it in Paul's heart to come to Antioch and stay there for a year. He's the one who's put it in the heart of the Antioch church to be burdened about lost people. God has orchestrated all of this for one guy. Now that's not to say that Sergius Paulus was the only one who came to know Christ on this trip. But it is to say that this is what Luke is saying to us. God has His sights on Sergius Paulus and He will go to any length to bring him into His kingdom. Just like saving Private Ryan, right? What an incredible length that they went to to save one person. God goes to even further lengths to save even one person. He has went to the same length to save you and me. He went to Bethlehem. He came to a manger. He goes to the cross to save you and me and Sergius Paulus. And this is what he's done here. And so this is what Paul is show, or Luke is showing us. The kingdom work is reaching out and it is doing so because God has chosen this man Sergius Paulus to be his child. It is because God has placed his favor on Sergius Paulus and has chosen him. This is why Paul and Barnabas are going here. And when did God choose Sergius Paulus? Paul tells us that those whom God chooses he chose in eternity past. From Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with spiritual gifts, with spiritual blessings. And He has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. Before the foundation of the world, He chose us. Remember in Revelation 13, remember the, uh, the Lamb's book of life? Remember that? Revelation 13, it tells us that only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life will be before the throne of the Lamb. Do you remember when it tells us that that book was written? Revelation 13, this is in your notes, it's not on the screen. Revelation 13 says that book was written before the foundation of the world. Now folks, how is it that God can choose us before the foundation of the world and yet we still have the free ability to reject Him. I don't know. I can't explain that. But I do know that the Bible emphatically teaches both. The Bible emphatically teaches that God chose us before the foundation of the world. We didn't choose Him. As, as Jesus will say in John 15, You didn't choose Me, I chose You. 
And when he chose us, he chose us before the foundation of the world. And then at the same time, the Bible also tells us that we have the free ability to choose or to reject him. I can't explain to you how those two things go together, but by faith, I believe it. And so God has placed his favor on Sergius Paulus, and he will go to any length to get the gospel to this man. But, as God takes the gospel to him, it is not unopposed, is it? Take a look here at verse uh, 8. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This reminds us that all kingdom work will be opposed. All true kingdom work will meet with opposition. Anything in your life that is not being opposed cannot be true kingdom work. Anything in the life of the church that is not being opposed cannot be true kingdom work because the Bible tells us repeatedly that kingdom work will be opposed. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 tells us all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus tells us in in, uh, Matthew 10, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. I came to set father against son and mother against daughter. Jesus tells us in John's Gospel that if they hate you, then know that they hated me before they hated you. All kingdom work will be opposed. And so this man Bar-Jesus, or Elamas, is opposing the work of the kingdom here. How is he opposing it? He's opposing the work of the kingdom because he's opposing God's kingdom messengers. He opposes Paul and Barnabas. He opposes their message. But also, he's opposing God because he is involved in this magic or sorcery or witchcraft or whatever you want to call it. He's involved with dark forces. He's involved with black magic or whatever whatever name you want to put on it. He's involved with this. And God has specifically told His people that His people are to have nothing to do with that. Deuteronomy chapter 18. God tells us, uh, God tells His people that um, there shall be not found among you anyone who practices divination or, or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. Unless we think that that's just an Old Testament commandment, Galatians 5 tells us the same thing. God's people are forbidden from dabbling in, in magic or sorcery or horoscopes or, or astrology or, or any of those things that have to do with anything supernatural that is not Him. The only supernatural that we are allowed to dabble in, if you want to put it that way, is, of course, God. And so this man, Elimas or Bar-Jesus, He's involved with this. He's opposing God. But then look at verse 9. Look at Paul's reaction. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I love Paul's response here. In my mind's eye, I can just see Paul saying this because this is completely characteristic of the Apostle Paul. And in case we think that maybe this is an unchristian-like response of Paul, Luke tells us that as Paul says this, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So he gives this sharp rebuke, this rebuke which is incredibly ironic. It's ironic in at least three ways. First of all, he says, Paul says, uh, you son of the devil. You son of the devil. Now the guy's name is Bar-Jesus, right? What does Bar-Jesus mean? We know what Jesus means, right? Jesus means 
Savior, Savior of His people. Remember Matthew's Gospel, you shall call Him Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. So Jesus means Savior. Bar means Son of. Right? Whenever we see Bar before a name, it means Son of. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Peter or Simon, Bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. So Bar means son of. So this guy's name literally means son of the Savior. Paul looks at him and says, you are no son of the Savior. You are the son of the devil. Because you are one who speaks lies and deceit. We can't help but think of Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Remember when, when, when they were going back and forth in John's Gospel about who the children of Abraham are? And Jesus says, you're not the true children of Abraham. And they say to Jesus, well, at least we know who our father is. Our father was Abraham. And Jesus says, your father was not Abraham. Your father is the devil. And you share the same character as your father because he was a liar from the beginning. Same thing here. We're reminded of that. Paul looks at him and says, you son of the devil. Then he says, um, will, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? The irony here is this. God has made a crooked path that is a straight path right to Seleucus Paulus. This path that begins at, at Bethlehem and it goes up through Calvary and it goes over through Antioch and then it goes over down to Paphos is a straight path to the heart of Sergius Paulus. And Bar-Jesus is trying to make this straight path crooked. I think Paul is probably, he's probably thinking here of Jesus' words to him on the road to Damascus when Jesus says, Will you, will you not, uh, or you, it's hard to kick against the goads. And so he says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Verse 11, and here comes the big, biggest irony of all. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The biggest irony comes down straight from the hand of God, from the Holy Spirit. He's, Paul says, you will now have the hand of the Lord upon him. So this guy, Bar-Jesus, he's pretended all along to have the hand of God upon him. Right? He's a false prophet, and so he's pretending that God has his hand on him. And Paul says to him, you want to have the hand of God on you? You're going to have the hand of God on you, but you won't like it. And so the hand of God is on him, and he becomes blind, and he seeks people to lead him. So notice the irony here. He is in spiritual darkness, and he's been seeking to lead others further into spiritual darkness. He opposes them because he doesn't want the proconsul to come to faith. So he's seeking to lead other people further into the darkness. And God strikes him blind so that he now has to seek people to lead him around. Notice all the irony here. Um, but then he's uh, struck blind, darkness fell upon him, and he goes about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now, that's Elamas or Bar-Jesus. Elamas is not the point of the story. We don't know, maybe, maybe Bar-Jesus came to faith, maybe he repented and came to faith. We don't know, but he's not the point. The point is Seleucius Paulus. Look now at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. God has placed his sights on Sergius Paulus, and God now has his man. Sergius Paulus now believes and, and notice that Luke is very clear to tell us why he believes. He doesn't believe because of the miracle of striking Bar-Jesus blind. He believes because he's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Faith 
As we know, Romans 10.17 comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The, the, the miracle of striking Bar-Jesus blind may have been sort of the final push through the door for Sergius Paulus, but it is the preaching of the Word of God, which again is why Paul and Barnabas had to go. Somebody had to come and preach the Word of God for them to believe. And so as Paul says in Romans 10, how are they going to believe unless somebody's sent? And so Paul and Barnabas are sent, he believes, and he has now come to faith in God. Here is the point of the whole story. The point of the story is God is the God who pursues those He loves. He is the God who pursues His enemies. He is the God who who looks down upon those who have declared themselves to be His enemy. And instead of turning His back to them, instead of saying, well, they'll go their way and I'll go mine, God is the God who pursues His enemies with love. The Bible is so rich with the teaching that God is a pursuing God. Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You hear the pursuing of us there. Or Roman, or I'm sorry, Luke 15. Luke 15, the story of the shepherd who searched. The shepherd who leaves the 99 and won't stop searching until he finds the one. He's the pursuing God. Or the story of the woman who loses the coin and will not stop until she finds the coin. Or the prodigal son whose father runs to greet him when he comes home. Or Jonah. Jonah is all about the pursuing God, the God who pursues the Ninevites. And not only does he pursue the Ninevites, he also pursues his prophet, who doesn't want to go to the Ninevites. So he pursues his prophet through storms and through a big fish. And he pursues the Ninevites because he is the God who pursues his enemies. We have declared God to be our enemy. We have raised our fist at Him and we have spat in His face. And He looks down upon us with love and He sacrifices Himself for those who hate Him and have declared themselves to be His enemies. And this is the, this is the glorious, beautiful picture of the Bible that God is a pursuing God. If you belong to God this morning, it is because God has pursued you. But let me finish by just turning to one particular place. We see this in many places in God's Word. One particular place where this is particularly beautiful is the story of Hosea. Remember the story of Hosea? Hosea is a prophet of God, and God's people have once again turned their backs on, on God and declared that they want nothing to do with God. They want to pursue their own passions and their own desires and so God says to Hosea, Hosea, you will be an illustration for me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and purchase a prostitute slave and then marry her. And before you do this, Hosea, I'm going to tell you ahead of time. After you do this, after you purchase her out of slavery prostitution, and after you marry her, she will not be faithful. She will leave you, Hosea, and go back into prostitution. And when she does, you are to go and buy her back a second time. And the reason for all this, Hosea, 
says God, is because you are a picture. You are a picture of me. And your prostitute wife is a picture of you. This picture is carried all throughout the book of Hosea. But I want to just look at one particular place that it, that it is especially beautiful. It's in Hosea 2. It's in your bulletin insert. Just take a look with me at Hosea chapter 2, beginning from verse 5. Speaking of the harlot wife who represents the unfaithful people of God, God says this, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I, says God, will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall, shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. You hear the prodigal son in that? And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for bathing. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I don't know if Scripture presents a more beautiful picture of the God who pursues, relentlessly pursues. As He lavishes upon His people the bread and the wine and the silver and the gold, and they use that for Baal, to give to Baal, thinking that it's Baal that's giving it to them. God is all the while hedging up the path with thorns and leading her into the wilderness so that she will come to her senses and return to her first husband. Is there a more profound picture of the God who pursues that's the point of the story of Bar-Jesus and Seleucus Paulus. God has pursued Seleucus Paulus. But God has also pursued you. He has pursued you through the manger, through the cross, and all the way to your heart. And if God pursues His enemies with such love as this, the question for us is, how will we now live for such a God? What will we sacrifice for such a God? What pleasures will we forsake for such a God? What sin against us will we not forgive for such a God? How far will we go to speak of such a God? But after tomorrow is a new year. And new years bring new things. Shouldn't this be the point in your life 
in which you drive a stake in the ground and you say, from this point on, God has all of me. The God who would pursue me when I was his enemy. How can I withhold anything from